starting to ask a lot of my Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients, that's my area of expertise within gastroenterology is autoimmune diseases. And I was starting to ask them, did you take antibiotics when you were younger? What kind of diet did you mm -hmm. eat? And I was seeing, you know, I was following the breadcrumbs backward yeah. and I was seeing a very similar history. So on the one hand, I was getting this advice that was very standard and conventional and was definitely the standard of care from my medical colleagues, but I was seeing the end results in my patients. And so I was saying, mm, yeah, I, I, don't, I felt like intuitively, but also because I was studying the science and I was seeing it clinically, I felt like we were going down the wrong path. We were going down a road that was not going to lead to someplace good. It was going to lead to an autoimmune disease or something yeah. along those lines. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and it is October 27th today as I am recording this. Halloween is just a few days away. The kids are getting super excited about dressing up. And of course, that means candy, lots of refined processed sugars and oils and salts and all those refined ingredients that really our kids' bodies do not need. But as a parent of three kids, I get it. I have teenagers. Um, I'm sure they are stuffing and hiding candy everywhere um, in their backpacks and in their bedrooms. And it's really hard to keep kids away from it. So just a word, a few tips, I don't know, words of advice. If you want them, you don't have to take them. Um, well, you know what? Have discussions with your kids. Tell your kids how much you love them and how much you just really want them to be around for a very long time. Instead of falling into the trap that I often fall into, which is, you know, don't eat that and you shouldn't do this and da da da, and the should start flying around at this time of year. Maybe just tell them why you want them to be healthy, everything that you love about them. Tell them that you want them to have strong bones and a really active mind. And of course, they're going to roll their eyes at you. That's what teenagers do. That's what kids do. But what you could do is just practice what you preach. So really put those healthy meals on the table, maybe suggest that they eat their meals first before they reach their hands into the bags of candy, especially if you have little ones. Another thing that I would often do with my kids as well, is we just had really firm boundaries. So we would go out trick-or-treating, we'd collect the candy, we did that. Um, we weren't as, I would say, diligent or extreme as absolutely banning our family from Halloween. I love the creative aspect of the Halloween uh, festivities and the games and the running around at night in costumes. I love making costumes from scratch. Um, it's just that fulfills the creative side of myself. But with that comes having all the candy. So what we just said to the kids is, okay, listen, we'll go out. But when we come home, you can have 10% of your findings. Um, you can choose whatever percentage that is. And then the rest, we would give it away. And then with that, um, that usually what we found is the kids are really, really agreeable to that because we were very, very firm, but we would communicate with them. It's all about communication. And we would say to them that, you know, these excessive amounts of refined processed sugars really is not good for your body. And we wanted them to be healthy and thriving. And then 
we would often check in with our kids and say, hey, listen, how are you feeling after you eat that candy? And what's been cool over the years is to see that the kids really do notice that the more refined products they eat, the less good they feel. And then our kids eventually started asking for things like, you know, like, mom, I really want a big salad. Can we, I'm really looking like I really want cooked greens or I really want X, Y, and Z. But that comes with also helping your kids develop a palate their taste buds for real food. So it's really hard when you haven't introduced whole foods into your kids' lives for them to have developed a palate for whole foods. So this is where if you haven't done it already and you're just starting out and you've grown up, you know, because your parents also might have out of convenience or are out of cost or just not knowing um, or been bamboozled by the food marketing experts, well, you know, you might've grown up on these refined processed foods and you might not have developed a palate for whole foods. And what I mean by whole foods, it's eating, a, you know, apples versus store-bought applesauce or peaches versus those peaches that come in a cup um, with the cellophane on top. So you need to develop a palate as well. And so it really does start with you, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, whoever you are that has, you know, is taking care of the kids in the house develop that palate, that taste for real food yourself. And then every day, just keep putting it on the table, put it on the table, put it on the table. And you know what? Sometimes the kids won't eat it. They won't be craving broccoli that day. They won't be craving uh, steamed carrots or a carrot squash ginger soup or whatever it is, but you keep putting it on the table. And they say that if you do that 19 nights in a row, just make sure your table is full of real whole foods. You keep putting that there. The kid will eventually eat the food and then they'll eventually crave it. And then they'll eventually be asking you for it. And then like my 18 year old now, my mom said, or she said to me, mom, don't worry about it. Um, the two younger girls, their palates will change and they are going to be craving this over the refined uh, foods that, you know, if they can take their their hard earned dollars from their part-time jobs and go and buy, you know, whatever's on the shelf at the grocery store, like these kids will do it because that that is, you know, normal. Kids want to be eating the same foods that the other kids at school are eating. So it's hard to just simply... Um, say that, you know what, my kid's going to eat 100% organic, plant-based, whole food the whole time. Um, in my world, that's been close to impossible, despite how much information my kids have. They've been at workshops They've with me. They've listened to me speak on stage. They they've read my book. They, they listen to the podcast. They know these things. And still, it is hard to get them eating that way all the time. Whereas now, like I said, my 18-year-old, is that's actually her preference. My 15-year-old, that's her default when she recognizes she hasn't fueled herself well. And now my 11-year-old, because she's an active competitive gymnast, she's noticed the difference in her body as well from when she eats clean real foods and when she doesn't. So it's a journey, and that journey requires sharing your vulnerability, sharing your love, sharing your dreams that you have with your children, and then also leading by example. Okay. So I just want to leave that with you now, my Halloween tips and tricks. Uh, let me know if they work for you. Now, 
Today's podcast is extra special because I started following Dr. Robin Chutkin, I don't know, maybe when her first book came out well over 15 years ago, and she is a gem. And when I say a gem, I'm talking about like the the gem of all gems, whatever that means to you. And it's because she has not only the heart for the work she does, She's got the intelligence, she's got the curiosity, she's got the gumption uh, to rise above and beyond everything that she was taught in medical school to go out and explore and collect data and information, and then to be able to go and apply it with her patients as well. And then by doing that, she sees the results. So her story is truly spectacular, really starting off when her daughter was born and and she was quite sick and she'll take you through that journey in this podcast all and how robin really came to understand the relationships between antibiotics environmental toxins and gut health so she is the queen of gut health in my opinion and it was such an honor to interview her on our show because of the fact that i have been reading her information it's what opened the doors to the plethora of information that is out there around the immune system, the gut, the brain, our immune system, our endocrine system, which is our hormonal system, and really so much more. So let me introduce her to you. Dr. Robin Chutkin, MD, is a board-certified gastroenterologist and the author of the digestive health books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. And her most recent book, I think, is one of the most profound and important reads of all time, The Antiviral Gut. Really important, especially as we are still in the midst of a COVID epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. COVID is still affecting each and every one of us on an emotional scale, maybe a physical scale, but even on a physical scale, it is not as huge as an epidemic as heart disease and diabetes. And heart disease and diabetes are directly the result of an unhealthy microbiome, an unhealthy viral system, an unhealthy arterial system. And it's so important to understand the work of Dr. Robin Chutkin so you can put what she's found into action, and you can reclaim your health, re- reverse your chronic diseases, heal yourself, and really ultimately reclaim your life. So in her book, The Antiviral Gut, you know, it's all about tackling pathogens from the inside out. That's the only way we're going to heal from the inside out. And of course, it focuses on the importance of gut-based defenses for improving resiliency to viruses. So please get a copy of that book, listen to it, read it, have somebody else listen to it, perhaps your partner or your child or whoever, just a friend, read this book. It's so important to get this information into you. Dr. Chutkin, she went to Yale. She did medical school there in her residency at Columbia. And of course, she got a fellowship in gastroenterology at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. She's on the faculty of the Georgetown Hospital, and she's also the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness. So go to her website, get in touch with her, and let's dive into this podcast now because it is a good one. And also stay tuned at the end of the podcast because 
Robin and I started recording the podcast and right off the bat. And then we started just talking about all things health related, but in particular, long distance plant-based athletes, dirt, sweat, vegetables, and, you know, pharmaceuticals and X and there's so many extras here. So we included that in the end, because I realized even though we hadn't formally started the show, this piece at the beginning um, was, was brilliant. So we included it there. So hundred percent stay around till the end of the show. Super excited to have you here. See you at the end. Bye. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and today we have the wonderful, brilliant, smart, energizing, inspiring Dr. Robin Chutkin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Really a pleasure to have you here. So, you know, we just talked about so much for the last 20 minutes that, um, as I was saying, we're going to incorporate that into the show because that was all really, really beautiful, um, rich, true, real um, pieces of, I always call them, you know, these gold nuggets that people definitely need to hear. But what I want to do is, you know, I've been wanting to interview you for a very, very long time, and I'm so excited it's happening today. Um, because you were such an inspiration to the work that I did, you know, really opening up the literature, um, pointing it out, making it available to everybody, and also just being, you know, a renegade out there in the medical community that didn't follow the status quo. So I'm really curious about that. What is it about you, your personality, your history? Like, what was it that allowed you to pivot? Um pivot within the medical system as opposed to just completely leave it because I like we talked about earlier you know you weren't exposed to the things that you were teaching in medical school so how did you arrive at this incredible knowledge about the microbiome um you know which evolved into gut bliss and everything what was it that was that pivotal point for you what really was uh a journey, not a destination. I'll say that I, my father's an orthopedic surgeon and so is my brother. So I grew up in a sort of medical family, but my dad, I don't know if it was because he was paranoid that we'd become hypochondriacs, but his general advice for pretty much everything was just go lie down, drink some water. Here, I'll take a sip in his honor. <laughs> I will as well. Drink some water. Your dad. <laughs> you'll be fine. And in fact, the I'm pretty sure the dedication to my second book, The Microbiome Solution is, you know, thank you to my parents for a dirty childhood. They're just, mm -hmm. my grandfather, we grew up in the city in Kingston, Jamaica, but his father had a sugarcane farm. My grandfather's family had come from India as indentured laborers and he had a sugarcane farm. He's Hindu, he didn't eat beef, but he also didn't eat pork. And so they had goats they had docks. He did a little bit of fish farming. He was really a Renaissance man, my grandfather. And a lot of what we ate came from his farm. And we spent a lot of time there just running around dirty, barefoot. I pretty, I'm almost positive I had pinworm as a child from running around <laughs> barefoot, which it turns out actually some of these parasitic illnesses can actually be protective later on because they dampen down your immune system. But there just wasn't a lot of attention to you know, if your hair was combed, if you were super clean. And again, if you weren't feeling well, you were to go and lie down and drink some water. 
And I think, as I mean, we got, we, you know, I, we went to the dentist and we got the basic childhood shots, but I just don't remember. I mean, there certainly was no like annual checkup or anything like that. You know, if, if you were well, you didn't go to the doctor. And I think that certainly had an influence on me. I will say I loved my training. I was at Columbia for eight years from medical school, internship, residency. I was chief resident there for a year. And similarly, I had fantastic training at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York for my gastroenterology fellowship. But here's the thing. Nobody was really asking the question why, you know, they were really good at answering what. So what you have Crohn's or you have ulcerative colitis or you have celiac disease or you have diverticulosis. And, you know, we know what to do for that. And here's, you know, this drug or that drug or this surgical procedure, but the question why just really wasn't on people's radar in terms of the medical community. And so when I came to Georgetown uh, to join the faculty in 1997, one of the really interesting things is they had not had a woman in the gastroenterology department before in 1997. <laughs> <And> <laughs> kind of surprising. And gastroenterology is one of those fields where I think the statistic today still is that 70% of the patients are female. At the time, it was 7% of the doctors. Now, I think we're up to double digits where somewhere, you know, between 10 and 20% of the physicians of gastroenterologists are women. And the studies clearly show that women, when it comes to certain areas like obstetrics and gynecology and gastroenterology, women prefer a gender concordant physician, mm. not always, but a lot of women do. So there was a lot of demand for me when I came, even, you know, before, if anyone knew I was good, I was good. But <laughs> even before people knew that they were like, oh, there's a woman we want to see her. So I started seeing all these female patients and they were a lot of them. And this is true for men too, of course, a lot of them were interested in why, you know, like, well, why do I have Crohn's? They were asking questions that Nicolette, I just didn't have the answer to. I had gone through this fabulous training at Columbia and at Mount Sinai, but I didn't, I couldn't answer those questions. And so I really set out to find out why. And it was a combination of a personal event that I'll tell you about in a moment with the birth of my daughter, as well as these incredibly generous, thoughtful patients who opened my eyes. I remember one of the first ones was a patient, she was about my age at the time, so it's early 30s at, not now, that was then, <laughs> 25 years ago. Um, and she had really severe Crohn's disease and she actually worked at the hospital at Georgetown where I was faculty and she was on, pretty big gun drugs. At the time, she was on a class of drugs called biologics that had really just sort of come out. And she left and moved to New Jersey for work. And she came back a couple of years later, and she came back to see me in my inflammatory bowel disease clinic. And I asked her what she was on, and she said nothing. And I remember feeling panicked. I was like, what do you mean nothing? And she said, no, I'm not taking anything. And she told me about this diet she was on, you know, nothing fancy. Basically, she had cut out processed food, dairy, most animal products. She was eating a high fiber, primarily plant-based diet. And I thought, well, okay, maybe she thinks she's feeling well, but let's see what's going on inside. And I remember when I did her colonoscopy, I remember it so clearly normal. She had had severe 
Crohn's disease in both her small intestine, in her ileum and her colon, with really severe ulceration, lots of inflammation. I scoped her, it was a normal colonoscopy, and I was just mesmerized. I, I couldn't believe it. And I even remember saying to her in clinic when she told me she wasn't taking anything, I said, Ooh, that's like driving a car with no insurance. You know, if you <laughs> in a crash, like you're you're really gonna be in trouble. And, and that was really the beginning for me. And then, you know, patients at the time, it was sort of like, don't ask, don't tell, right? Like they wouldn't necessarily volunteer the information. And part of that is because they anticipated a sort of disapproving, like, oh, mm -hmm. that stuff doesn't work kind of, you know, disapproving uh, reaction from their physician. But I was actually interested. And a, a little story before I'll tell you about the personal pieces, there was a conference in Italy for young gastroenterologists. And at the time, I think you had to be, to be like under 32 or maybe under 35. And I was just, you know, just under um, the, uh, the ceiling there. And you had to submit original research. And the meeting was in Capri, Italy, and it was all expenses paid. And I was going, I wanted to go. And so I thought, okay, what's like, you know, some really original research that I can throw together. So I get selected to go to this conference. And I decided to do a little study in my clinic on the use of complementary and alternative medical practices. So I just did a simple survey and asked anonymously, you know, who, what were people doing? Were they using, whether it was nutritional therapy, acupuncture, meditation, what, whatever kind of complementary and alternative medical therapy. And I found out that 72% of my patients were doing some sort of alternative therapy, whether it was a supplement, a practice, et cetera. And again, most of them were doing it in conjunction with their regular conventional therapy, but they were not volunteering it. So it did get me to that conference wow. and it, it got me, you know, I asked a series of questions on the survey and it really made me realize that this stuff was working for most people. You know, they weren't doing it to spend extra money or just because they were doing it because it was having beneficial effects. So again, patients opened my eyes, but my own very personal experience came about almost 18 years ago when I was pregnant with my first and only child, our first and only child, my beloved Sydney. And I had a very uneventful pregnancy other than the dreaded AMA that they write all over the chart if you're over 35, right? Advanced maternal age. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know, you're you're younger than I am, but maybe with your last one in the US, if you're literally a day over 35, you get that stamped in big letters on your chart. And so very, very healthy uneventful pregnancy. And um, when I actually went into labor, I had the flu. And so I had a fever. And so they gave me prophylactic antibiotics, even though it was a viral illness, I wasn't really sick, but they gave me antibiotics, ended up with a C-section despite my best efforts. And because of my fever, they ended up giving our daughter heavy doses of intravenous antibiotics, again, just in case. And they put her in the NICU, in the neonatal ICU. Now, I really hadn't had my awakening about the microbiome then and the effect of antibiotics early on in babies and how detrimental that can be 
to the microbiome, particularly on top of a C-section where you're missing yeah. out on that passage through the birth canal and the important colonization with the mother's microbes. So she got these IV antibiotics, C-section. I wasn't able to nurse very long because my breast milk dried up after about six weeks. And then we really started to see the effects of all of those factors, right? With frequent infection, she was such a sickly baby. Mm. She was literally sick every month, antibiotics. And I really wasn't putting together the circumstances around her birth, the C-section, the lack of prolonged nursing and the IV antibiotics at birth in the NICU. It took a while. And then I started to realize like, this isn't normal. You know, babies, even mm -hmm. though it was our first baby, I'm a doctor. I did my pediatric rotation. Yeah. Like babies aren't sick every month with antibiotics. And I finally, when she was about two, I finally sat down and I counted up. I'm a pretty obsessive filer. So I had all the, all the prescription slips and I, I counted up. And I realized she'd been on like two dozen courses of antibiotics before oh. she was two and a half. And that's when I was like, okay, there's something going on here. And, yeah. and we just did an about turn and we just really made some changes. And, and those are changes that I like to remind people. I'm a physician. I have some inside knowledge on when something requires treatment or not. So I don't recommend going rogue. But what I do recommend is having a really pointed discussion with your child's pediatrician in this circumstance. And there's some really compelling studies. There's one from the journal Pediatrics that shows that pediatricians prescribe antibiotics about 63% of the time when they perceive that the parent wants it and only 7% when they don't. So I always wow. tell my friends, my patients, like be that parent who has one eyebrow raised and is like, yeah, is this really necessary? Is there something else we could do? What if it's viral? So it was, again, both the patients and my personal experience with my daughter that made me realize there is a connection mm -hmm. between what people are eating, between antibiotics, between what's going on in their microbiome. And of course, that was substantiated and validated by several studies in the last decade, a very famous one from our GI journal, Gut that shows that antibiotics early in childhood are a major risk factor for developing Crohn's disease. And, mm -hmm. and we have that information for lots of other autoimmune diseases also. Yeah, those, um, there are so many incredible pieces just in what you were saying, like even just going back to um, what, you, what your dad's advice, just drink water and go lay down, which I actually think is quite brilliant advice in this day and age where we're so overwhelmed with so much information. And for somebody who doesn't read medical journals, for someone who doesn't have a science background, for someone who, you know, potentially doesn't have a medical team, you know, or a doctor that's going to advocate for them, like, for example, to not take out antibiotics if they don't need it. Um, but it's just such good advice for everybody so they can just sip the water, go lay down, take a few breaths, like stop stressing about whatever it is that you have going on and just give yourself a break to be able to then just decide, okay, who do I need to go see next? What would be my next course of action? Maybe I should just eat something. Maybe I need sleep. Maybe I need exercise. Maybe I need, you know, change up my diet, you know, or maybe this is critical and I do need to go get, you know, expert medical opinion. But I love that piece of advice more than ever in today's world. Now, one of the things that um, 
I'm really curious about. So if your daughter was on about two dozen rounds of antibiotics and she's only two years old at this time, you know, like you must have been get, were you getting a ton of advice from other doctors? Like what was happening in your world around that time? Were you like diving into the research at this point on gut health or did you just intuitively know something had to switch? I'm, yeah, I'm just curious for you, you know, you as yeah. a physician compared to a mother who doesn't have a science background, doesn't know what's happening. Sure. Well, I certainly was getting advice from doctors who I think are very well-meaning and amazing doctors, but were just really, I think, poorly informed and really not, not keeping up with the science in this particular area. So for example, there's a wonderful allergist and immunologist in the area who is beloved by many parents for good reason. She's got a great bedside manner. She's very well-meaning. But when my daughter had fluid in her air that wasn't going away from all the episodes of otitis media, most of which were probably viral. She recommended that we just put her on antibiotics until it goes away. And I was like, well, for how long? She's like, oh, I don't know. It could take six months. And at that point, what I was seeing was I was starting to ask a lot of my Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients. That's my area of expertise within gastroenterology is autoimmune diseases. And I was starting to ask them, did you take antibiotics when you were younger? What kind of diet did you mm -hmm. eat? And I was seeing, you know, I was following the breadcrumbs backward yeah. and I was seeing a very similar history. So yeah. on the one hand, I was getting this advice that was very standard and conventional and was definitely the standard of care from my medical colleagues, but I was seeing the end results in my patients. And so I was saying, mm, yeah, I, I don't, I felt like intuitively, but also because I was studying the science and I was seeing it clinically, I felt like we were going down the wrong path. We were going down a road that was not going to lead to someplace good. It was going to lead to an autoimmune disease or something yeah. along those lines. And like a lot of people, I have autoimmune diseases in my family, right? I have a family history. There's some genetic predisposition, but we know that for the majority of these diseases, the genes are just a suggestion. It's mm. the environmental trigger. And that is primarily diet, antibiotics, acid blockers, steroids, plus, you know, other infectious things you can be exposed to. So the nurture piece of it was really essential for me. And that's when I really realized like this, this wasn't the way to go. And I will tell you that when we stopped, when we got off this train of antibiotics every month, and it was, it was also turning into more, they were saying, well, maybe she has asthma, here's a nebulizer, here are steroids, here, are way too many drugs. Um, and so when I, when I like to say, when I went down the green smoothie and split pea soup pathway and stay home and rest when you're sick, you know, it took a while for her immune system to really recover. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was still pretty sick. She would get sick and she'd be sick for two weeks, but then she got into this period where she just wasn't sick. She wow. was, she was, I could see the resiliency and it was incredible. And I see it with myself, you know, when I'm not sleeping, when I was working on the manuscript for this latest book, The Antiviral Gut, which was really hard because I would wake up in the morning and they'd be like seven new scientific articles no. that were like completely different <laughs> and contrary, contradicting to the ones I'd read the previous month. So yeah. it was a lot to keep track of. Yes, and no. it's, still, it's still evolving. I mean, one of the, one of the great things is my, 
my team at Penguin Random House at Avery, my imprint, said, why don't you do the citations as a link on your website? And it was mm. brilliant because I can update them all the time. And yeah. I, it's one of the first things I do in the morning, somewhat obsessively, is I look at my feed of what's come through with the scientific articles. And there's still really brilliant stuff coming through. And so really the ability to pre present people with this book, but then also say, and here's this link so you can see, you know, how this science is still evolving. Yeah, no, and that's a really good point that you bring up. I just finished writing a 44 page paper for um, just wrapping up my PhD and, and I just did a quick look to see since 2018, how many studies been published on plant-based diet and reversal of chronic disease, 68,000 studies. 68,000. And I'm like, you can't, it's so hard to keep up. And I'm wow. sure on the opposite side, there's probably 68,000 studies, you know, saying, you know, potentially contradicting, you know, what, you know, the, everything I've been reading. But at the same time, I mean, and like, I know you probably do this too, you dive into the research and you actually look at the study and you have to see how it was designed and who put it together and, and really to get at the heart of it, you know. Um, but there is one part that you mentioned that I think is really critical for parents who are listening to Robin right now and thinking, okay, well, she's a doctor and, you know, she was able to go, to go rogue, let's say, and start bringing in the pea soup and all of that. But I think people need to start with believing that your environment affects your health. And that is one place that, you know, so many of my clients, they say, okay, well, it's genetic, it's genetic, it's genetic. My parents were sick. My parents have Crohn's. My parents have mental health conditions, you know, but we need to transition into a knowing that chronic diseases are reversible. So like um, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, what saved his life was him, instead of looking for the treatment of diabetes, he looked at how do you reverse diabetes? And that took him down a completely separate line of research. And then he found diet, you know, eating lots of vegetables, healing your microbiome, et cetera. And then he believed his disease was reversible. That was the other part is yeah, believing your environment. That's absolutely essential. And you can only really get to that place if people are supporting it, if the medical practitioners you're seeing are supporting that, and they may not be the ones who can give you the tools, but if they're saying, yes, this is possible and maybe directing you to those resources. I also want to say though, I, I'm a very proud physician. I, it's one of the things I'm very thankful for that I am a physician. I'm proud of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm always telling people who come to see me who say, well, my doctor told me that, you know, the food doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do me a favor. Don't fire them. Unless they're an asshole. If they're just yeah. an asshole, then fire them. Yeah. But don't fire them. I want you to bring them along because I was yeah. brought along and yeah. my eyes were open. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back to them and I want you to tell them this. And I want you to show them this article. And, and really, because we have to change it from within. You know, it, yeah. it's it's almost like the school system. If everybody just comes out of the public school system and starts our own school we we don't improve the public school system, right? Exactly. So we need to change from within. And it's so important for those doctors who are practicing more conventional medicine to also understand, you know, well, what else is there besides metformin for diabetes yeah. or insulin, right? And what do the studies show? And so I, I really encourage people to have a dialogue 
with their doctor and to make sure that there's an exchange of information and to understand that they have a role in their medical care also, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be top down. It should really be a, a dialogue and, yeah. and an exchange. And if you can do that, and I'll tell you, it's happened a couple of times, especially with my Crohn's patients. I see a lot of people from out of town and they, I'll, I will usually say to them, look, if your gastroenterologist in Oregon doesn't know that you're coming to see me, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want this to be a hidden furtive thing. I'd like you to be comfortable. I can't force people, but I will say like, I, I like to write a letter yeah. and, and send a summary. And I feel badly if I can't do that. So I'd love you to let them know in as gracious a way as possible. I'm just, I'm going to this other doctor just to see her for a second opinion. She has a slightly different orientation and I'd love your opinion on what she mm -hmm. recommends. And then I'll I'll write a letter because I want to bring them into the conversation. And, you know, they don't have to agree, but if they're willing to, and I will say to people, look, we're going to give this three months, right? If at the end of three months of hitting the dietary changes hard, you're not noticing any improvement, then maybe this isn't mm -hmm. the right path for you. Maybe, yeah. you know, the degree of inflammation is too severe and you need, you know, more conventional drugs to get you to a better place. Maybe there's too much cellular damage, but mm -hmm. let's give it a shot for, for 90 days and see. And so what I'll do is I'll ask them, you know, let your doctor know this is a plan. We're working together. We're not, you know, off hiding, doing this mm -hmm. stuff. And it is amazing, you know, when they are better. And then I'll often get a call from that doctor saying, oh, so what exactly are you doing? Yeah. They're, they're curious. And it doesn't mean they're going to change our practice. Like their practice may be, look, I prescribe biologics and steroids and five ASAs, and that's what I do. But I, I'll tell you, Nicolette, that the majority of my referrals come from other gastroenterologists. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's the part that is really remarkable now too, is that there are so many more physicians that are diving into this. And one of the things that I do have to point out for people, because I used to teach my clients, fire your doctor, like fire your doctor, if they're not going to work with you, fire your doctor, if they're going to tell you that, you know, eating that many vegetables is unhealthy, because I've had, you know, physicians tell my clients that, you know, that's, that's not going to be good for you. Um, and so, you know, if the person's not going to support them, or if they don't want to run the blood test for them, if they don't want to just, you know, be an advocate for them, and, and support them, and then you know what, you do need to find somebody else who is going to do that. But at the same time, now I have been transitioning into, you know, you have to go in there as a patient and go to your doctor and say, hey, listen, I'm willing to change my diet. I'm willing to move my body. I'm willing to drink more water. Like tell them that you're willing to make the changes. And, and the reason I've started telling my clients that is because I have heard the physician say, well, most people just want a pill. Yeah. And they don't know that most that there's a lot of people who are willing to do the work, but they also want the support of their physician. So it is a relationship. It's going to be a dance. And then the second part about that is that don't just completely write off your doctor because it takes time to make the changes. If you've built a practice on, you know, prescribing biologics or a prescription meds or doing surgery or whatever it is, it takes time to A, get comfortable with the research, understand it, learning like there's a scaffolding effect of this learning that you learn a little bit and then you feel 
courageous enough to say, Hey, you know what, let's, let's work a little bit with diet with this patient and let's see what happens. So it's not going to happen overnight. Nobody's just going to read one article or one book and, and completely transform their whole entire practice. So we have to be patient with, you know, um, the physicians, because when they spend eight years in school, studying something a certain way, it takes time, right? Just like it did for Absolutely. you and for myself. I didn't learn this overnight. So yeah, so there is that dance that needs to be played. The other point I just want to make too, just as conventional medication doesn't work for everyone, a food as medicine approach doesn't mm -hmm. work for everyone either. And so yeah. that's the other thing too. Like I've seen what I can only call miraculous results for complex autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and even autoimmune hepatitis. But I also have patients where changing the diet, the lifestyle, using heavy dose prescription probiotics doesn't make them better. Mm -hmm. So we do need to have that one foot in both world, right? And yeah. and nothing, I mean, very few things are hundred percent. So that's not surprising, yeah. but I will say that our results with using a food as medicine approach for again, these complex GI autoimmune diseases, we have about a, between a 70 and an 80% response rate and a very high remission rate. And that's double what most of the biologics yeah. do. And by the way, this isn't going to give you cancer or cause serious infection. You know, when yeah. you look at the side effect profile, it's pretty undesirable. So I look at it as, you know, you have nothing to lose. There's a very high chance you'll be better with this. It's certainly going to improve your overall health. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't get you all the way to the finish line, we have these other drugs at our disposal. So it really is a very low risk and lots to gain type approach. Yeah. And the other side of that too, that I've really been communicating with my clients, it's the, you know, try it because if you do get the results, just imagine what that means for your family and for your children, because these children are born into the world now of you know, you grew up in a farm, you know, going to your grandparents' farm. I grew up with my mom farming um, and growing food in our backyard, but not all kids get that anymore. So A, they're not dirty anymore. There's so many sanitizers. There's so many antibiotics. There's glyphosate and all the pesticides now. There is, you know, so many chemicals that these little babies are just born into the world. So do it for yourself, yes, focus on your own health first, but also just imagine that the fallout effect for those children who get to be introduced to these environmental changes that they can make around their diet and of course their their stress and you know and their sleep and everything else, because we know that's all important as well. So true. Now, there's another piece that I really wanted to touch on that I love, and it's the follow the breadcrumbs backwards piece. And I love that because. I do a health history by the decade um, health history intake with my clients. So I go through each decade and I say, okay, tell me all the drugs you're on, all the surgeries, all the hospitalizations, all the accidents, all the traumas, and we write them down by the decade. And through doing that for the last 15 years with thousands of clients, I see the exact same thing that you also noted. It is intense use of prescription medications, predominantly antibiotics that result in all of these very similar, like the GI um, issues, the Crohn's disease, like the MS, the diabetes, that the everything, you see that pattern. And so I think it's important, and I just wanted to suggest that, that you don't have to wait to go to a doctor who's going to follow the breadcrumbs back with you. You can do it yourself, right? So uh, you can just- Make a timeline. Exactly. Of all the things. And I will tell you, I was, I haven't read his book yet, but I was listening to Gabor Mate, 
on the ritual podcast and he's mm-hmm. his new book is called the myth of normal i believe yeah and he was talking about something that i hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about because i'm very focused on the microbiome and dysbiosis and damage to the microbiome as the platform the sort of disrupted soil on which these diseases develop but he's focused on something else entirely mm-hmm. and that's a concept of trauma yeah and particularly unresolved conflict and how that can become fertile ground. And again, other factors, genetic predisposition, the microbiome, et cetera, but the unresolved trauma, trauma and unresolved conflict, uh, how that can sort of breed these diseases, particularly autoimmune diseases. So it was yet another dimension for people to think about. But what I love about all of this is it is all pointing to this idea that these things don't just fall out of the sky, right? Totally. They, they are made not born for the mer- for the most part. And my sincere goal with the book writing, everything else I do is it's really just one goal. I want to give people the power to understand what's going on in their bodies. You know, power to the people. Yeah. My mother's named after Lenin's wife, Propskaya. My grandfather on my mom's side was a card carrying member of the Communist Party. And I think Grandpa Frank would be proud of that goal, which is, you know, we need to empower people. We really Mm -hmm. have a duty. I feel like I have a moral obligation as a physician. I mean, yes, I want to sell books too, for sure. I need to make a living. But um, there's an obligation to put this information out there. If I can provide someone with information that they can use to help make themselves better. I mean, that, that is an incredible privilege and honor to be able to do that. Oh, it, and you know, you called it miraculous when you see these individuals heal from these diseases and they did it by making changes to their environment, starting with their diet and, and, you know, and also following through the patterns of stress and trauma. And of course, all of that, but it is, it is, a brilliant thing to watch somebody be able to reclaim their life, to get their energy back, to be able to play with their kids again, to be, we just had a client who's now off disability and she is working with us full time. You know, it's, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that are possible, but it does start with um, having that desire to want to heal from within, which is what you talk about a lot, especially in your new book, which I haven't had the opportunity um, to read the manuscript yet, but that's coming. When is your new book coming out? It's coming out November 1st. And okay. uh, I'll give you a quick overview. It's called I The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. And if I were to summarize it in one sentence, which is challenging, I would say that the theme of the book is this idea that the health of the host is as important, if not more important than the potency of the pathogen. Mm. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, we see examples of this all the time. If you think about really sort of very virulent viruses like Ebola, Ebola has a mortality rate of 30, 40%, but Ebola is only able to infect one in three adults it comes into contact with and only a tiny percentage of children. So once it does infect you, it can it has a high chance of really making you very sick and even killing you. But there are lots of people who are exposed to Ebola, two thirds of people who don't get infected. If we think about poliovirus, and it's fascinating that these viruses are back on the horizon again. Mm-hmm. So there was just an article this morning about the Sahara variant of Ebola, 
they had eradicated the Zaire variant. Now there's a Sahara variant. As you know, there's poliovirus has been found in the sewage and uh, a case in New York. So we think about poliovirus in 0.5%, one in 200 people, poliovirus crosses a gut lining, gets into the bloodstream, travels to the brain and causes devastating flaccid paralysis. Mm -hmm. But what about the other 199 people? What, you know, who either have no symptoms or who have mild self-limited symptoms? HIV, 10% of people are completely immune to HIV. No matter how many times they get exposed, they will never become infected. So what is it, what can we learn from these stories in terms of health hosts to make sure that we are as resilient as we can be to viruses? And I feel like this book goes very much hand in hand with public health awareness around vaccines and masks and mm -hmm. social distancing, et cetera. So it's not either or, right? But there's yeah. a lot that you can do to be a healthier host. There's understanding that stomach acid, in addition to being an integral part of digestion, it denatures viral protein. And so when something like SARS-CoV-2 gets into your body through your mouth, which is a common portal of entry, if you have intact stomach acid, that is going to denature the viral protein and kill the virus. Mm. But if you're taking an acid blocker, you are two to four times more likely to get COVID because of that lack of stomach acid. It's understanding how mucus works to trap and expel viruses out of our body. Even something like fever, poliovirus replicates 250 times faster at normal body temperature versus when we have a fever. So when you have a fever, that's your body working hard to protect you, to halt viral replication. And that's when most people, you know, run for the Tylenol or the Motrin or whatever it is. So we have to really understand these innate host defenses. Our gut lining, that one cell thick lining that is really the only barrier between you and the outside world that you're swallowing every day that's getting into your gut lumen, right? And of course, your trillions of microbes, your sort of battalion of soldiers in your gut that are actively involved in slaying viruses, in competing for their receptors, in putting out substances that kill them, in triggering the immune system, when to react and how aggressively to react. So all of this stuff is happening in the gut. And again, I just felt compelled. I'm like, gosh, people don't know this and they mm. need to know this. So it was, it was a tough book to write because the science was changing so much and it was a completely novel virus, but the science really is not new. I mean, we know about this stuff. We know about post-viral syndromes from things like mono that we see with Epstein-Barr virus, from chronic hepatitis, et cetera, from myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS, which we know is often linked to viral illnesses also. So even though long COVID is a new syndrome, we have a lot of precedent that we can draw on in terms of what causes these post-viral syndromes. And even more importantly, how can we address them? How can we make people better and help them heal? Yeah, this is such an important book, you know, in this day and age, especially after what we've just gone through for the last two and a half years, three years, and with, you know, people understanding now, you know, there's a part of me, as devastating as it was for many, many individuals around the world, COVID, it was also you know, 
quite a pivotal point in history. People are understanding, you know, comorbidity factors and, you know, getting this virus and what that means for them. People have woken up, it seems, to um, the concept of food as medicine at a much larger scale. People are diving into it in through lots of different avenues, through cleanses and diets and, you know, at faster pace than I've ever seen before. Um, so it's been quite interesting. But at the same time, I know we still have a ways to go. And one of the pieces um, about this very thin, you know, unicellular lining, our gut lining, this part is also really important to talk about just a little bit more. And if you can explain that um, in more detail to people, because it's important for them to understand how exactly food affects that lining, how exactly other environmental toxins affect that lining, how stress affects that lining. So if you could talk a little bit more yeah. about that, that would be good. Absolutely. So you might not have, well, you certainly have Nicolette, but for some of your listeners may not have thought about the fact that when food is in your gut, when we ingest something, we chew it up and we swallow it, it's not actually inside your body. It's inside this 30 foot long digestive superhighway that runs from our mouth to our anus. And what allows it to get into our body is it is broken down, it is digested into smaller particles, and then it travels through this lining. And this lining is like a net. It's semi-permeable, it's got small holes in it, and it's a selective barrier. So it allows certain substances of a certain size to go through and others not. So for example, incompletely digested food particles, large bacterial proteins, toxins, et cetera, are kept out of our body and kept in the gut lumen and are then excreted. So if the net is damaged, you can see, you know, you can sort of visualize pretty easily what can happen if you start to develop large holes in that net, poorly digested food particles can get through and they can end up triggering an immune response, which is why we see such a plethora of food sensitivities because people's gut lining is damaged. What damages the gut lining? There are a number of factors. There are five big ones. So diet, the first one you mentioned. So a diet that's high in refined sugar, lots, you know, if you're eating very pesticized food, so you mentioned glyphosate, other things like that. So really highly processed foods, very sugary foods, a lot of fat. There's evidence that gluten, a protein in wheat, rye, and barley, for a lot of people, not just those with celiac disease, can be damaging to those junctions, to the lining. So diet is a big one. Alcohol, things like that. The second is this concept of dysbiosis, a messed up microbiome. Mm -hmm. Because on one side of that gut lining, you have all the immune cells on the inside part. And on the outside part, right in the gut lumen, you have the trillions of microbes. And there's constant interaction between the two across the lining. But if the microbiome is disrupted, that can also damage the integrity of the gut lining. So dysbiosis is a second big one. Stress is a huge one. It can literally increase the space between those cells. It can loosen up the junctions. In addition to the deleterious effects it can have on the microbiome, inflammation is another big one, whether that is caused by medications like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that that poke holes, whether that's caused by acid blockers, steroids, or whether it's caused by native inflammation in conditions like ulcerative colitis, et cetera, or it can be caused by radiation therapy. People who have had parts mm -hmm. of the gut or parts of the body radiated where it has, an effect, where it has affected the gut 
So it's, um, you know, it's a very strong lining, but it can be damaged pretty easily. And when I do an endoscopy in somebody at the hospital, and I see an ulcer, an ulcer is basically a big hole in that lining, right? That's what mm -hmm. that is. But there are lots of things that cause smaller microscopic holes that we're not seeing. And drugs like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory yeah. drugs, even when you're not getting a big ulcer, we know that these drugs have a high probability of causing little holes in the gut lining, even in people who are clinically asymptomatic. So they're they're a big category. And um, yeah, that gut lining, what we've seen, for example, with COVID, multi-system infla inflammatory syndrome, MIS, in both children and adults, is associated with a leaky gut, with an increase in intestinal permeability. So I like to explain to people that leaky gut is more a mechanism than a disease in and onto itself. An mm -hmm. increase in intestinal permeability can lead to a lot of different things, including worse outcomes from viral illnesses, because now the virus is penetrating mm -hmm. through the lining and can reach distant organs, heart, lung, liver, et cetera, and sort of wreak havoc. So it's really important to have an intact, healthy gut lining. And of yeah. course, I, I would be negligent to not mention that one of the most important foods to feed the enterocytes and colonocytes, the digestive system cells that really are responsible for maintaining that lining are something called short chain fatty acids. And they are metabolites of bacteria. Bacteria eat fiber, they ferment the fiber and they produce short chain fatty acids. And high levels of short chain fatty acids are associated with a healthier microbiome and a healthier gut lining. So one of the most important foods, it's not just don't eat glyphosate and you know lots of refined sugar. It's that you must eat a lot of healthy plant fiber if you're trying to maintain a healthy gut lining. That's probably one of the most important things. Yeah, no, that was a really, really good explanation of that. And it's the part that I cannot stress enough to people because we are in the world now where so many different labels for so many different diets, you know, whether you're vegan or plant-based or plant-based whole food, but at the end of the day, it's the food marketers that are confusing the heck out of people. So they're creating all of these refined plant-based whole food, vegan products but it's still a lot of refined foods and yeah. a lot of the nutrients are taken out. It has to be supplemented with, you know, vitamins and nutrients to even be able to call it food. But at the end of the day, people, it's like, eat the carrot, eat yeah. the rice, eat the potato, eat the squash, eat the banana, eat the apple. You know, it's, it's, you cannot go wrong when you just, you know, take these single food ingredients, mix them into whatever you want to make them, but it's got to be the whole food with that whole fiber. Um, you know, two, two, two points I want to make about that. One is I'm sure you saw the recent study showing the link between ultra processed foods and colon cancer in men. And there've been lots of studies that have shown yeah. colon cancer, not just in men. And, you know, what people have asked, well, what, what's the association? It's exactly, as you said, a lot of the nutrients are taken out and lots of things are put in. So things like emulsifiers that we know are damaging to the gut lining and to the gut microbes. If we look at artificial sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners, mm -hmm. we know that they're very disruptive to the gut microbiome and they can actually turn more sort of harmless and sometimes even helpful bacteria into pathogens. So not only are these foods nutriently and microbially poor, but they have chemicals in them that are damaging. And then the other thing I, I wanna say about that when people talk about you know whole foods, cause I think there's some confusion still about what that is. And, mm -hmm. 
patients will often whip out a bar, uh, some sort of, you know, protein bar or something. And we're like, well, I'm eating this and it's just dates and nuts and blah, blah, blah. So the way I like to explain it is if the food made a stop in the factory on its way to you, hold off. Yeah. If it came straight from the ground, from a bush, a tree, a vine, a, you know. Yeah. So again, apples, yes. Applesauce, not so much. Lentils, yes. Lentil chips, not so much. You know, it's, and again, you know, if your lentil chip ingredient says just lentils and salt, fine but again it still came from the factory right mm -hmm. so it's yeah. still not the same as eating lentils because there's no lentil chip tree bush plant root yeah. etc so i think it's important for people to as you said there's just um you know all that information is really just marketing on the package yeah and going back to you know all the books that you've produced you know with um, the microbiome solution the bloat cure the antiviral gut you know um gut bliss you know it's also about the cleanliness of our food when it be goes into when it's manufactured in a factory in a plant it it's too clean for our system we're not being exposed to this beautiful diversity of bacteria that is going to be present on the foods that we're getting from the farm, like the potatoes that still have a little bit of the dirt on it. Sure, you're going to clean it underwater, you know, but we don't have to be sanitizing our food and which is basically what happens when it's produced in a box, in a package, yeah. in a plant. Yeah, so we that's the other place we get our microbes from after birth and our mother, particularly for those of us who were fortunate enough to be born vaginally rather than via C-section. But the second place is the soil microbes. So I'm very suspicious when I go to the supermarket and I see the carrots are all, you know, 4.7 inches long, uniform orange color. There's no dirt. I'm sort of yeah. like, where's the dirt? Yeah. I love seeing the gnarly, funky looking carrots with the little, you know, fingers growing out of them totally. that are all dirty and they all look different. So it's really important to consider what is a microbial richness of your food. And even if it's organic, if it's grown in an industrial factory, which a lot of the organic food yeah. is, or even worse, if it's an organic cookie that's just processed ingredients. Um, you know, I, I often know that I, I will put stuff out just to sort of play around and see what the ants eat. Yeah. There's lots of stuff ants won't eat because it's just not food. It's too many chemicals and they, they don't eat it. So that's another test too. If you're curious is to see what the ants are eating. Yeah, no, that's another good point as well. So with the, so with where we are now, everybody's hand sanitizing. I mean, I go to the gym multiple times a week in the morning and we have to spray every section down. Like it's, it's wild. So what, so what is your opinion on this now post COVID with, you know, we were making a move away from hand sanitizers being in schools because we saw how dangerous it was dangerous it was for kids to be washing their hands with hand sanitizers like every 15 minutes and then they go and eat their food and now the hand yeah, sanitizer they're eating triclosan which is you know an ingredient still in some hand sanitizers and it's an endocrine disruptor and also problematic for the microbiome so I think it you know COVID has definitely changed a landscape for sure I mean I think we have to balance things right mm -hmm. but we don't have any data than wiping down weights and dumbbells at this moment. And particularly like we're all in there unmasked and we're wiping yeah. equipment down. And that yeah. just obviously makes no sense. Right. And so we, we always have to balance these public health guidelines with this idea that we can strengthen the host. And again, I, I don't recommend that 
people ignore the recommendations, but again, we have to believe, and science tells us this, that we can improve our resilience through these different things. So, you know, short answer, I'm not a hand sanitizer fan. And when I do use it, as I did, you know, early on in the pandemic, when I couldn't, washing your hands with just a regular soap, not an antibacterial soap, because of course it's a virus you're trying to kill, just regular soap, warm water, getting in the crevices and washing your hands for about as long as it takes to sing one verse of happy birthday, dislodges viral particles is much more effective than hand sanitizer. But, you know, we're not always traveling with our mm. sink and our warm water and soap. And so, you know, early on, I think we were, we were certainly in a different state, but I've got some great recommendations on my blog, which you can find at either gutbliss.com or robinchutkan.com, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N. And we've got some great recipes there for really simple hand sanitizers, household cleansers that you can make that are not disruptive to your microbiome. And the second book, The Microbiome Solution, has all kinds of chapters for stuff for hair and skin, hand sanitizers, cleansers, et cetera, that are not disruptive to your microbiome. And, and just like we look at what's in our food, we need to look at what's in these products for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can sit here and chat with you all day. And we did spend about half an hour getting together and chatting at the beginning. Um, I just want to know, let people know. So what are some other things that they can find in your book, The Antiviral um, Gut? Yeah. So the first part is divided into how it works. And the first chapter is, I think, one of the most comprehensive, it's called the gut immune connection. And it explains, again, this hand and glove relationship between the gut and the immune system. And again, 70 to 80% of your immune cells are actually physically located in your gut mm -hmm. along that lining. So it explains that interaction, I think, in terms that are very easy to understand and why the gut has such an influence on the immune system. So that's the first chapter. And then I talk about some additional defenses like stomach acid and mucus and fever. I talk about additional vulnerabilities like sleep and stress and exercise and weight. And I also talk, uh, there's a whole chapter on leaky gut and dysbiosis is another big chapter of this alteration in the, in the sort of balance of the microbiome. So those are, that's the first part of the book, how it's supposed to work. And then the second part of the book is called what goes wrong. And that then explains, you know, what, you, how the diet can affect this, how acid blockers can affect it, how a leaky gut can affect it, et cetera. And then the third part of the book, which is probably the longest section is the antiviral gut plan, strengthening from within. And that's broken up into a number of different chapters. So for example, the first chapter is building up the body and that describes food and drink, et cetera. The second part of that is mastering the mind. And it talks about you know, how we can reduce our response to stress, mm. how we can really fine tune our stress response to make sure that we're triggering our parasympathetic system, not our sympathetic system, so we can induce a calmer state in our immune mm. system, which translates a calmer state mentally, which translates into a more balanced immune response. So that's mastering the mind. And then there's a whole section on the environment talking about things like the open air factor, mm -hmm. which is defined as a germicidal constituent in open air that can kill viruses and harmful bacteria. And a lot of that data we know from the Spanish flu epidemic a hundred years ago, we saw very different 
recovery rates for people who are recovering outside versus those who are in the hospital. So we talk about how we can really take advantage of things like the open air factor and Shinrin Yoku forest bathing and, mm -hmm. you know, taking advantage of those amazing soil microbes to, to help us build more resiliency. And then there's a whole chapter again on sleep. I divide that up into environment, um, ritual, supplements, diet, et cetera. Like, what do you need to do to get a good night's sleep? Because it turns out that sleep deprivation is one of the biggest factors for susceptibility. You can have, there's one study that showed a 76% increase in likelihood of becoming ill after a virus in people who are sleep deprived. And you can actually decrease your likelihood of infection by 12% for each hour of extra sleep you get. Wow. So, you know, when, when you read that chapter, you realize it's not an accident, an accident that when you're stressed and not sleeping, you tend to get sick. You, you yeah. understand that whole connection. So there's some very actionable things to do um, for that in terms of how to get to sleep, et cetera. And then there's some amazing recipes. I've had worked with the same person, my recipe developer, uh, Elise Muselis for all the books. And I have really clear criteria for the recipes. They have to be simple and they have to taste really good. And in this book, uh, out of, gosh, I think 50 or 60 recipes are all plant-based except for two. I believe there's a soup in there where there's some chicken that's optional and there's a fish recipe. So they're plant-based and they're gluten-free, they're dairy-free, et cetera, but they're simple. Few ingredients, really easy. So I make all the recipes myself. I don't like to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Either I don't do I. like to have to go shopping for a bunch of, you know, esoteric ingredients. So I, I have a really low bar for like simple, easy, delicious. Well, high bar for delicious, yes, but um, can't be complicated. I'm, you know, I don't consider myself a chef, even though I like to cook. So um, the recipes in there are really fantastic. So yeah, the antiviral gut. That is amazing. And when's it coming out? It's coming out on November 1st. November 1st. Okay, so everybody's going to have to get a copy of that. We are going to sell your book at our restaurant. We sell lots of books through our oh, restaurants. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. so we'll have it there. And um, we'll probably do a workshop at our cafe as well based on it, so all the different things that we love to do um, out of the green I do, mustache. I do, want to, I do want to mention, Nicolette, sorry to interrupt you, but it is available now for pre-order on Amazon, oh, Book Pavilion, Indie Books, wherever books are sold. We also have a couple great pre-order bonus incentives, including a fantastic um, sort of ebook that is a food guide, meal plan, additional recipes, and that's available on the websites. And we have more pre-order incentives coming up leading up to the pub date, including an antiviral gut course with um, lots of different practitioners and myself. So you don't have to wait till November 1st to get it. You can go ahead and order now. Okay, that is perfect. So we are going to have all the links in the show notes um, and make sure that that's there. We'll have it through our cafes. We'll have it on all of our websites so people will be able to um, find all of this incredible, really, really, and and not just important information, but life-saving information. Because we have too many people that are living with these chronic conditions that are reversible, that they can go into really 
remission, but not even remission as we've known it to be, but literally where you can be free of your illness for the rest of your life, increase your longevity, because living this lifestyle contributes to longer lifespan as well. We know that the research shows that. So it's going to add years to your life. It's going to um, give you so much time and energy with your family, with your loved ones. You can go out there and just, you know, with all of this energy that you have, do incredible things, go help other people, um, go cook for other people, go start a business, do whatever it is, write a book, do all the things that you've ever dreamed of doing. So really, really important life-saving information. I do have one last add question. life to your years, not just years to your life, but life to your years also. Yeah, that's a really brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, I always say, you know, right now we're in this day and age, we are living short and dying long. But we have all of this knowledge that you present in your book that is, you know, presented by all these other incredible physicians that are, you know, teaching people how to reverse their conditions. And, you know, we can go back to living long dying short. My, uh, my husband's grandmother just passed away watching TV, no disease, 97 years old, you know, just fell asleep in her chair. And then that was it. And this is what I wish for everybody is that you can pass away peacefully like that. And it's through the information that you share, Robin, that um, people are going to be able to do that, go back to doing that. So my last question, if people want you, how do they get you? Can they go to the Digestive Center for Wellness? You know, how can people work with yeah, you directly? We, we're currently not taking new patients, but we are looking at, you know, the pandemic kind of lit a fire under us for how we can serve a larger community. So starting in the new year, we are going to be opening up for virtual consultations. They're going to be on a more educational one-time basis. I'm not going to be able to provide ongoing medical care if you, you know, mm -hmm. if you live in Canada or Kansas or somewhere outside of this immediate area, but we are going to be opening the practice back up to people and particularly people who are looking for a specific type of expertise that may not be available where they live. And then the other thing that we're launching in the new year is we're launching our course that we ran earlier this year called drug-free IBD remission without immunosuppression. And so that's a course specifically mm -hmm. for people with autoimmune diseases and, and specifically Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis who are interested in a more holistic approach to their disease. It doesn't mean that you necessarily will never be on a drug again. It doesn't mean you even have to have a goal of getting off the drug you're on, but it means you're interested in what else can you do besides these medications, right? What about the role of sleep, of stress, of food, probiotics? What else can you do to get better? And we launched that earlier this year in 2022, and we sort of beta tested it and it was extraordinary. We I did it live, it's a four week course. And I would send the material out ahead of time. And then I was with the participants every Tuesday night. It was supposed to be an hour, but it was invariably two hours and longer. And it was it was so wonderful for me to get to know these people. And so we were gonna launch it as a just virtual and do it as your own pace, but we've decided to launch it live again because it, it really is that live question and answer with the participants where I think people learn the most. So that will be that will be out. And so if you want to keep up with all of this, you can go to robinchutcan.com or gutbliss.com. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We don't do any advertising. We don't share your information with anyone, but every month we put out a blog with three really interesting research articles. We break down the science and we put out announcements about things like this. 
That's amazing. That is amazing. I have to thank you, Robin, for taking the time to share all of this with our audience, with myself. It has been such a delight chatting with you. And I have a whole list. You should have seen the amount of questions I prepared thinking we'd get into it, but um, which probably just means we'll have to do another episode together just to dive into some of these other topics in more detail. Um, uh, so many here that I'm looking at that are so important for people. But in the meantime, they can go to your website, sign up for your courses. It's going to be really, really important. So I just want to thank you for the work that you are doing in the world, for putting yourself out there like that. I know it takes time to write those books, to publish those studies, and to go beyond just seeing people in seven and a half hour, you know, seven and a half minute, you know, patient interview um, uh, session. So you are extraordinary at what you are doing. And I just want to thank you on behalf of our Eat Real to Heal community for everything you do. Well, right back at you. I love the work that you're doing, you know, between the restaurants, the courses, the uh, nonprofit work, and of mm. course, the educational work. So thank you so much for sharing that. I've got to come up to Canada and go on one of these, you know, rambles, one of these walkabouts, a long run, <laughs> bike ride. And I love that. I'm a slow endurance athlete, but I love getting outside and just, you know, going till I can't go anymore. So I definitely have to come and join you on one of those once you well you should again. definitely come out for when we go on the tour next summer I'm going to be on the road for three months you can join me at any leg of the tour oh, for across sure. yeah across Canada and it's going to be fantastic because we'll be meeting with so many BIPOC communities as well um you know and just sharing stories about traditional whole foods as medicine learning about the barriers to accessing you know the quality of foods that you and I talk about um you know and I spoke about on this podcast there's so many communities across Canada and across the United States where you know anybody who is a person of color can't access foods that you're talking about in your book and so we need to break down those barriers and we need to find a way that you know people can get foods and it doesn't have to cost $90 for a pound of cherries or you know you know $10 for a banana in some of these communities so if you come and join me it'll just enrich for the sure. conversations that we are having out there and you can be part of our documentary the food of our ancestors that we'll be making and so that'll be wonderful I'd love it. I would love to, and I'll have to, uh, I'll have to come and mobilize my Jamaican community there. That exactly. would be fantastic. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah I'm de definitely going to follow up with you and we're going to make that happen for sure. For sure. Don't worry. I'm the slowest endurance athlete you've ever met. I do Z2 training. So I always keep my heart rate like around 125 beats per minute. So it's uh, it's a good way to run. It means you can really go for a long distance. So you'll be fine. I promise you that. <laughs> okay, great. And did that happen this summer? Has that happened or did, was, is that happening? So it was supposed to be, so it was three years now it's been postponed because of COVID. So last year, um, the, we, because I'm meeting with BIPOC communities and mostly indigenous communities across Canada, it wasn't safe to um, travel. And because it's part of my PhD research, uh, the university like wouldn't allow any students to do research in person with participants. So then I ended up just doing the BC tour. So I just went across the province and back. So that was about 30, yeah, 3,400 kilometers. And so that was good. That was like, you know, a prep for what the whole entire cross Canada thing. And is how be. do you decide how much, sorry, I'm trying to 
yeah. avoid the light. How, how, how do you decide what you're running, what you're biking? How is, how is that split up? Like, yeah. So last year I was doing 21 K a day running and then 90 or 90 K no 80 K a day biking. And then, um, it actually was too much because, uh, I thought I was ready for it, but it was a lot. And I ended up getting, like, I'd never had blisters and never had shin splints. And on day five, like I got blisters and shin splints. So uh, next year, what I'm going to do. And of course I'm like, my coach is like, why are you doing that amount? And I'm like, I don't know. That just feels good. <laughs> and so next year, I think I'm just going to do like 10 K a day running and 90 K biking and try and stick to the hundred K a day. Um, because I, yeah, I don't want to be away from the kids for too long and they're going to pop in and out and support on the tour. But did yeah. you watch that, um, iron cowboy? Yes. Yeah. Did you see his feet? That was insane. But what was he doing? Like a marathon a day? A yeah. Full marathon a day for, yeah. yeah. He full triathlon. Yeah. Full triathlon, full yeah. Ironman distance. Oh, Ironman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm obsessed by these. I'm a very slow marathoner. I've never, I mean, I've like 426 is my best time, but I watch all these, I watch all these documentaries. Thank you. Like running the Sahara and all that, you know, I'm obsessed with this idea of running long distances because it just is one of those tangible ways that we can push the envelope, right. And see what we're capable of. And for me and my running in DC, I live, I'll just show you, like we're surrounded by wood. There. That is amazing. So I'm literally looking out at the forest out right, just surrounded on three sides. But what I'd love to do is use the running um, to do errands. So like, you know, like we go to the movies and we went to our first movie a couple months ago. And so I'll meet my husband and daughter down there and I'll run down and I always have a backpack and I'm always sweaty and then nobody wants to sit next to me because they're like, (laughs) you know, but, or we'll, be somewhere and I'm like okay I'm gonna run home and take my stuff so I like this That's idea so of great so running for transportation you know just yeah. out and back for leisure exercise ah but if I'm like okay we're going to you know a party at a friend's house and I have to meet them and it's 11 miles and it's like you've got to get there you yeah know, the exactly though is you arrive in you know a little bit of disarray but yeah well, I, I love those and, but that's such a great way to do it. And part for me, one of the reasons why I got this idea in my head, part of it was Rich Rolls, all his, you know, podcasts that he did with people. It was just like, okay, what are these people doing? Cause I was never a long distance runner, not even really much of a runner um, and never had road biked before two years ago. And so, you know, mountain biked and did that, that's fine. And for commuting, but yeah, so it just kind of got this idea in my head, but I've always wanted to do something long distance. Like for the last 20 years, I've like, you know, I was like going to do this um, cross Canada, like through the Baffin Islands, like kayaking tour. And then, and it was to always raise awareness about something, you know, health related. And then like another time I was supposed to bike to Mexico and then that net fell through because I was pregnant. And so there was a whole bunch of, you know, and so this time, but then what happened is a few years ago, my mom said to me, she was like, Oh, you know, your great, great, great grandmother walked away from a slave trade lineup on the coast of Malawi and when she, she walked... was eight right yes she was a young girl yeah it was like it was unbelievable and I was like mom come on all these years of me talking about like doing long distance like traverses like you never told me this story and so for me I'm like is that in my DNA <laughs> you know that um or just in human DNA like that's that's 
Well, you know, you, you, what you bring up this idea of like, and I was talking about, you know, like walking or running as a form of transportation. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the Kenyan runners and the Ethiopian distance runners, many of them grow up in communities where they're running five, 10 miles a day just to get to school and back. Exactly. They're running to get water, they're running to get educated. And so it is that, you know, I, I love how you're thinking about extending that, that idea of like running with a purpose, yeah. running to honor. When I did my first quite slow marathon in 1998, when I moved, I moved to DC in 97, I did the first one in 1998. I had that same feeling of like, okay, if I'm going to run 26.2 miles, I, I've got to do something good yeah. for someone. So I signed up for the um, the AIDS marathon group. So it was raising awareness. There's a, a local HIV clinic in Washington that did free testing and treatment called the Whitman Walker Clinic. Wow. And so I raised I raised money for that. And it, it just felt right. You know, it yeah. felt like a waste otherwise to like all that training and effort and you weren't celebrating some other cause. So I love that you're, you're coupling that. Yeah, no. And I had that same feeling. I listened to a ton of audiobooks when I was doing the tour last year and I listened to the Iron Cowboys book. I listened to, um, uh, David Goggins book, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Like brilliant, you know, so yeah, yeah, all of the, but it is an interesting thing how so, so many individuals and more and more now have that within them to want to go those distances and with them. And of course it breaks down, you know, it touches on everything. Like when you're going long distance, your gut health, right? Like, you know, you have, you know, totally. runner's belly and all of that. And then, it, yeah. you know, it's your mindset. It's your, it, it incorporates everything, your nutrition, your physical health. Like it is pretty, pretty remarkable to know your body at that deep, intense level. And I've, when I've looked at some of the, and like you, I, you know, I stay up late watching these videos on YouTube <laughs> and these documentaries and and for some of these folks, you see like doing the really long runs, like the hundred plus what they're eating. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. how is your body even able to manage? Like, you know, they're I eating know. just cheeseburgers or like a whole pepperoni pizza or just things that I just think even under the best circumstances, I'm not sure how, how I would feel. So, yeah. you know, this idea that like, it's just fuel and it doesn't matter versus I think some of the plant-based endurance athlete like Rich and Scott Urich and these guys, and um, they are really power. But I mean, I don't think I've met a plant-based endurance athlete who hasn't, you know, all the folks in game changers who haven't said like, this is so, this fuel is so much more efficient for me. So much more. And the recovery is so phenomenal because um, I, and I did look at, you know, David Goggins, I looked at um, Iron Cowboy, you know, I looked at these guys and and that I was really fascinated about what they were in eating. And then of course, following up to see like, did you really do well? But they had a ton of injuries. Like, and I mean, they're also doing, you know, so is it related to diet? But like, if they were doing it plant-based, even though I know Iron Cowboy tried and he said he couldn't do it, but I mean, you actually, you know, you really can in, in a lot of ways and maybe supplement with a few things, but um, the Appalachian State University is going to be studying about 700 different protein markers while I do my tour across Canada, because they want to see like 47 year old woman, like doing 100 kilometers a day, what is that doing to her body, like immune system, everything. And so it's going to be interesting to see the results. And I um, met with um, 
not John Hopkins, uh, Cleveland Clinic, and they want to publish a few studies on um, my heart health as I'm going mm -hmm. across as well, because, wow. you know, there's all these studies that show that your body, like, you know, any endurance sport is actually not good for your system. Um, whereas <laughs> a little <laughs> I know exactly. I'm like, yeah, but look at the standard diet that most people are eating who do endurance sports. Like and there's it, an exceptional it, few that eat. And of course really it depends on your baseline. I mean, if you were a 47 year old couch potato, which you're anything but right. So yeah. the same thing, it's like when people ramp up and I know you see this all the time with clients, when people ramp up their fiber consumption yeah. and they start to complain of gas and bloating and belly aches, like if you are eating, you know, a Cheetos and cheeseburger diet, and then you start eating large amounts of kale and asparagus and lentils, you're going to have some gas, but really understanding that that's yeah. not a bad sign, right? And what's going exactly. on and how to mitigate that. So I think the same thing. I think the the pendulum in the in a lot of the um, in other, a lot of the literature about the effect of endurance exercise and going long distances on the body, the idea that it causes an increase in cortisol and secretion mm -hmm. of other stress hormones is really changing because what they found for so many people, it's the opposite. It's a stress reliever exactly. and it actually balances those hormones. So yeah, that's, it's amazing. You're going to be like a human guinea pig, if you will, for, um, for science and for medicine. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, no, it's, I'm really excited by it as well, just to see, I mean, at the end of the day, I love anecdotal evidence, you know, it's like those stories of disease reversal. And I mean, we can't, you know, to publish a study costs millions of dollars, you know, to have true clinical trials. So, you know, we have to take those anecdotal stories and then hopefully it just feeds the next researcher to want to actually do better research. So it's a start, right? I'm an N of one in this case for, um, for collecting the data. I wish some of the other athletes, because Rich has had a lot of amazing athletes that have done unbelievable things. And it would have been like, I would have loved to hook them all up and understand what's going on <laughs> internally. Did you, did you listen to one of his recent ones on Mike Fremont, the oh, centenarian? No. no. Oh, that that is hands down my favorite. So Mike Fremont, I believe is from Ohio. He's 101 this year. And he became plant-based at age 69 after being diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer. Oh, wow. So that was what, 32 years ago, <laughs> metastatic stage four colon cancer. Wow. And he holds all kinds of records, the marathon, et cetera. He used to run 10 miles every other day in this park near his home. I believe he's cut that down to five, but he's also an avid and a champion uh, canoeer. A paddler and the thing I love about the episode I don't know him personally but I feel like I do and I'd love yeah. to meet him. the thing that I love is that he really I think more than anybody I can think of who I've encountered recently embodies this idea you know I always say dirt sweat vegetables yeah. so he's doing dirt sweat vegetables but also purpose so he right. has this little group of other elderly folks and I think they call themselves the EPA the elderly paddlers association and and it's like a little think tank and they're trying to solve important issues wow. around climate change and and other things and I just love that this 101 year old man is actively engaged in trying to solve some of these problems in yeah. the world you know it was just it's so inspiring and I think you amazing. know I think when you meet people I always think the proof is in the pudding, you know, and I tell people like when you go to see your doctor and they're not talking about food and they're giving you a bunch of pills, when you really look at them, like 
do they look healthy? Do mm. they look vibrant? Do you, you know, do yeah. you kind of feel like I want some of what they're having? Right. And, you know, some of that is genetics for sure. Some people are are mm. genetically blessed, but so much of that is nurture rather than nature. Totally. How people are living. And, you know, I think as healthcare providers, like if we're not living well and we're not doing things that make us more vibrant and, and healthier, we're not in a great position to be giving advice. And so I yeah. think that consumers are now looking with eyes wide open and saying, hmm, right? well, I'm it's... Not sure this person is, may, this person may be the right person to put a stent in if I have an acute cardiac event. Totally. But in terms of preventing heart disease, this person who is maybe a smoker and overweight and you know, not the healthiest may not be the person to give the best of preventive advice. No, exactly. And, you know, and I, I get a lot of the reports from then physicians and the oncologists and the medical teams of my clients. And so, and I see it in there and they will write, your diet has nothing to do with your disease. Yeah. Like they will actually in 2022 still write that in their file. And, you know, you talk about Mike Fremont and that's the thing is, you know, I started all of this because my friend's dad reversed his stage four cancer that had metastasized mm -hmm. and he was 72 at the time. And this Mike reminds me of Bill because Bill was, yeah, 60, no, 72. And he switched to fully plant-based whole food diet. Um, reversed his cancer, lived another 22 years. And wow. in that time, he grew one of the fastest growing real estate companies, Exit Realty. Then he also um, became a pilot. He also started this old timers, um, uh, para not paragliding, uh, like skydiving group. So it's like, they, like these people, they are all over 75 and they all do these formations in the sky. So it just goes to show you like you have an entire lifetime ahead of you, which, you know, Mike Fremont in this think tank, they literally could find, you know, they could, you know, absolutely. Like, you know, the solution to so many things that we need, like whether it's with regards to climate change or whatever, like we have so much goodness within every year of our life. And it's, yeah. And then we have, you know, individuals that are still saying that diet has nothing to do with disease. It's, it's it, the thing I can understand is that I could see, you know, I finished medical school, gosh, 1991, 30 years ago, 31 years ago. Uh, and I could see then, but we have so much evidence. Yeah. I mean, every day I was just looking at an article from our local newspaper, the Washington post about the microbiome and food. I was reading another recent article in my alumni journal uh, from Columbia Medical School in the Columbia Alumni Journal this morning talking about the increase in seasonal allergies and how right. it's related to climate change and what's going on in our body. So, you know, the evidence is irrefutable, but yeah. yet, I mean, I think that some of it is that the pharmaceutical industry has such a tight hold on the medical industry, yeah. not just, um, not just a close relationship, but they're, they fund a lot of the research, they're involved in a lot of the medical education, and they're able to really direct the message. And while again, I'm all in favor of pharmaceuticals, but yeah. also an advocate for more judicious use. So I think that is part of the problem there. I know for, for all the medical societies, I was on the board of one in the GI world, when we are arranging those plenary sessions, when we're looking at who's going to speak at our national conferences, everybody is on the take. I mean, that is really what it is, is yeah. when you look at, you know, who, where the funding is coming from. So you're getting 
thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars oh, yeah. from a phar- pharmaceutical company, your messaging is going to be affected by that. And throwing up a disclosure slide that says I'm funded by and, you know, listing oh. 15 companies doesn't resolve that conflict. No. That's just a disclosure. So yeah. again, you see this situation where the key opinion leaders in medicine are all funded or the vast majority of them are heavily funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And it really influences the message you're sending out. And then that's trickling down to everyone else. So it's, no, it's I, a problem. Yeah, we see that. And then you see the influence in the food industry because those food lobbies have so much money as well. And they influence so many decisions. But the other side that I've really seen in through educating physicians and when they learn about this and then they apply the therapy that I teach, they heal themselves, you know, that... And what I've seen with them happen is peer pressure. And so what happens is they go out and start telling their peers that, you know, look what happened. I don't have psoriasis anymore. I changed my diet. I'm fully plant-based. And they all of a sudden are ostracized by the the people that they were in practice with for like 30 years who are now thinking literally again in 2022, calling them a quack for eating, you know, plant-based whole foods. And will not they will not look at the literature like they just refuse to and so then i see these physicians not want to be as outspoken and they pull back a little bit so they'll do it for themselves they'll do it for their family but they're not like for example you which is i mean we should start this this is the show right now everybody (laughs) but we're officially starting yes we've been chatting for you know 35 minutes, but oh my gosh, I need to see Becky. She's the one who does all our editing and puts all the shows together. And she's like, I could just tell she's going to be laughing when she sees this. Um, And there we have it, folks. Wasn't that an amazing show? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Becky for editing our podcast and getting it live and into your ears so you can listen to it or watch it on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening to all our shows and you know what to do. Please share these episodes with your friends, your family, your loved ones, because our show, I know it, they, it contains so much valuable information that is truly life saving. It's all about learning, then applying your learning and putting it into action. And if you are someone who is listening and you're a healthcare practitioner, a dietitian, a nutritionist, a therapist, anybody who is working with clients or students or patients, perhaps you're a yoga instructor and you have access to 40 students a class, you know, or 10 students a class. I know that 60% of those clients and patients are battling a chronic degenerative disease and they want to reverse their condition. And they're sick of being bounced around from supplement to diet to, you know, nutritional protocol that doesn't get them results. So if that is the case, you need to sign up. You don't need to, but I encourage you to sign up for our nutrition and detox training program. You can go to our website, link is below and get access to our info session. We call it a mini course. It's a two-part video that you definitely want to watch to learn about how the work we do is so vastly different from what all the other fad diet trends are. And you'll get to learn how to reverse chronic diseases so you can support your clients and your students and your family members in reversing their chronic illnesses for good. So we have now automated this course. So it's part automated, but part live. So you're going to get weekly group coaching for life. So you can continue to support your patients and your clients. 
in the reversal of their chronic diseases. So watch the um, watch the mini course info session below in the link, and then please sign up for the program. It's a six month program. The first three months is we dive heavy into the art and science of reversing chronic diseases using metabolic nutrition and detoxification. And the last three months of our course is all about launching and scaling your business. So we have been a seven figure business for 10 years in a row. We scaled from five figures to six figures to seven figures, all in the health space. And we did that all in one year. And so I've taken my knowledge over the last 15 years of being an entrepreneur with seven businesses, helping many, many entrepreneurs scale into the millions. And I take all of that information and I give it to you in this three-month program. So even if you just signed up and only did the last three months of the program, this would be an amazing course for you, no matter what your business is. But of course, we want to teach you how to reverse chronic diseases so we can build an army of healers that are going to put an end to this chronic disease epidemic that is on us. So thanks for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for our next podcast on the Eat Real to Heal show and have an amazing, healthy, vibrant day. Bye-bye.